Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. Would you kindly welcome Chris Matthews. Isn't this a great venue? I've been here before, yeah. This is great. I'll sit down now. Yeah. What, what, what we normally do is uh, I get to play Oprah for a while, yeah. uh, ask you some questions about the book and so forth, and then right. open it up to the audience so that uh, folks who are here can question you as well. Can I point out my family's here? And Eleanor's over there, and Aunt Agnes are there, the sisters of St. Joseph. And uh, my brother Herb is here, and Charlie's here, and of course, Commissioner Matthews is here. And also some of their kids, uh, Jimmy's here, of course, Jimmy Matthews and Steve Matthews and David Matthews and Susan Matthews and uh, a lot of good friends. And, and, and you wondered why the event sold out so quickly. <laughs> Republican National Convention, 2004, night three. I'm at the convention. This is funny the way that lives sometimes intersect. And I'm trying to get back to my hotel because I've got to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and be on the radio the following day. I couldn't take a taxi. But, you know, they have rickshaws. Yeah. So I give a guy 20 bucks 
to pedal about 30 blocks to drive me solo back to my hotel. He makes a turn through Herald Square. Were you staying in the Bronx or where were you staying? I was staying in some, some, <laughs> 30 fancy, blocks. some fancy place on the, uh, on the Upper East Side. Okay. And Mr. Baldini only paid 50% of the bill. Uh, we ride through Herald Square. Place is Bedlam. Get back to my hotel, turn on MSNBC, and it's the Zell night. Yeah. You waited all of uh, three pages to start talking Zell Miller. Tell me that story. Tell us all that story. Well, I, I use it to open the book because it's the most exciting moment I've had in television. In fact, a TV Guide said it was one of the 100 most unexpected moments in the history of television. And that was a hell of a list if you look at it. Um, I uh, saw the convention speech by Zell Miller, who was a very angry uh, conservative Democrat from Georgia, who spoke at the Republic convention. And he just blasted away in a very personal way against Teddy Kennedy and John Kerry. It was really personal. And I thought maybe these two big liberal elitists had sort of looked down their nose at him, hi-hatted him. I couldn't figure out, but it was damn well personal. You could tell. It wasn't just ideology or politics. Anyway, he comes on the air, and he was loaded for bear. And I said, you said that Ted Kennedy and, uh, and John Kerry are only interested in defending this country with spitballs. And I said, Why'd you say that? He said, that was a metaphor. And I said, for what? What's it a metaphor for? And he said, and he, he just wouldn't answer the question. He got mad at me. He goes, he says, you know, uh, I wish I was over there where I could get in your face. Because he's up on the screen. And then after a few minutes, he just kept raising it up. And then he uh, basically said, I wish we still lived in a time when you could challenge a man to a duel. And I thought, this guy's getting real close to the edge here. And I thought... Maybe I'm crazy. I thought he meant it. I thought the next thing I'd know, if my producer said one word to the press, I'd find myself on some grassy knoll somewhere <laughs> with uh, some guy handing me Confederate pistols. And so I said, don't say nothing. And luckily, the next day, of course, the whole time I'm on the air, the president of my network, Rick Caput, who's now a big shot at CBS, was doing what they do on television, which is, do you ever watch these police shows when they got the kidnapper on the line? And the police guy always says, keep them on the line. So we're tracing the call. Keep them on the line. Keep them on the line. Don't lose them. We got them hooked. Savor it. Savor Stretch it, it out. Because they're thinking in this crazy world of television, and this is true, men especially can sense there's something on another channel that's exciting. And so they're, they're hunting like this, you know. And they're looking for that crazy electricity out there, and they can sense it's out there. So he, somehow your ratings spike when something good's happening. How else do you explain it? How do people, they're not watching all the screens at once. And he's right, it does spike. And so he's saying, savor it, stretch it out. And I'm saying things like, you know, I, I wish you could come over here where we could have a better discussion tomorrow night. And, uh, and I'm just playing the political thing there. And, and finally, I get a call the next day and I'm going to bed. I wrote in my notebook that night, I don't know which way this thing's going to go. Am I going to look too partisan because he got so partisan? I'm worrying about it. And I get a call at noon it's Arnold Schwarzenegger on my line on my cell phone. Chris, that man's a moron. <laughs> and he's talking about him like he said, that man made, gave you a million dollars in publicity. He should be having lunch with you now, making friends. And I talk a little more like Transylvanian there. Anyway, uh, he, um, he was great. And he made me feel like I'd won the bout. And I guess I did. Because I didn't get mad. I laughed. If you look at the pictures, and we show it a million times, he's getting more and more angry and cranky. And I'm just laughing and enjoying it. But actually, I was, I was laughing because I said, one thing I've learned from politics, do not get personal. 
No matter how hot it gets, pull back, enjoy it, recognize he's doing what he's doing, I'm doing what I'm doing, and try to learn from it. Speaking of live television moments, I, uh, uh, I, I thought I was treated horribly by Bill Maher last spring, but it's like a wreck on the Schuylkill. I can't help but take a yeah. look. So Friday night, 11 o'clock, you're a panelist. What the hell happened? What was that all about? <laughs> well, it's a live show with no seven-second delay. I think, by the way, Imus is going to have like a three-hour delay, right, when, <laughs> when, he, comes, when he comes back. Uh, and a black co-host, just to keep him honest, you know, uh, which might be a brilliant idea, actually, because the guy could demur when he says something he doesn't like. Um, uh, all of a sudden, this guy starts yelling, and I was going to say, that's the most inarticulate heckler I've ever heard, because I have no idea what he's yelling. And then the, and he went down, and Mario is running down to the guy, and he comes back and says, look, I'm not as gutsy as you think I am. I know we have a metal detector here. <laughs> so I knew the guy wasn't armed. And then he goes, there's another one pops up, like a time-release guy, and then another time-release person. And finally, you start hearing what they're yelling about. What about Building 7? Now, that is apparently code among this crowd of uh, conspiracy theory. They believe George Bush, the President of the United States, set the explosives for 9-11. That he did it. Like he's, I don't know, an arsonist. I mean, they got it all figured out, because it couldn't possibly be the airplanes. It had to be him. And so they got the whole thing to start the war with the Arabs, and that's what he wanted to do, and he did it all. And God, it's getting quiet in here. How many people agree with these people? Let me hear it. <laughs> anyway, no uh, one. No, anyway, uh, and he got really mad at them some more. You know, where's security's yelling? And security out in LA is kind of laid back, you know. It's kind of like they didn't really act, they didn't taser these guys, obviously. They were a little nicer, and eventually they handled it pretty well, I thought. Your book speaks to me. I, I love this book because, uh, like you, I've had a lot of wonderful political experiences, albeit not at your level. But I've, I've said to my own kids, uh, young as they may be, uh, it's a great way to, to learn about life and to meet people. And so many lessons for your life come through the political involvement. But I, I want to start with the fact that you were a Capitol Hill policeman. Right. I had no idea till I read the, the book yeah. about that piece of your history. So w w what was the lesson that you took from that? Well, first of all, I've got my cousins here. I forgot to mention. Anne Marie's here. Kathy's here. <laughs> Teresa and Eamon are here. Dan's here. So they're all here as well. And I know I will continue to remember the names of who's here. Uh, and I thank you for coming. I was slow on the draw there. And I know you'll remember I forgot to mention the first time around. Anyway, uh, <laughs> where are they? Where's every, where are my cousins? Hey, I, I feel like we're... Oh, there they are. There they are up there. There's Eamon. There's there. There's I, I feel like we're playing the old spectrum where there's obstructed view. Can we take down there's the Teresa curtains? Because Terry. I just realized that there are people who are behind us, and I apologize for that. I'm so sorry. And, and our good friends at the Hartford, the people from the Hartford, we appreciate it very much. Okay. They're sponsorship. I'm sorry about that. It's Al Jolson here, ladies and gentlemen. He wants to see the crowd. You know, I was a cop. I was a, uh, there are probably some real policemen here, and I don't want to get in your company, but uh, I had a 38 special, and I was checked out, and I uh, guarded the uh, Capitol for three months. I was uh, moonlighting. I was working in a senator's office for daytime, 11 to 3, then 3 to 11 at night, and it was my first job in Washington. It was the only job I could get, and I didn't know anybody, so after knocking on 200 doors, I finally got a job with a Utah senator who said, his top aide said, uh, you work uh, at night as a cop. And it, it, to me, it taught a lot because I started off working the hill, knocking on doors. I went to all the Irish Catholic guys, the congressmen, thinking I'd get a job with them, thinking I'm from Holy Cross, you know, the background, Peace Corps, Kennedy's Peace Corps. They'd be the best bets. Well, they were all stocked up with patronage. They had all the friends they had. Right, but I have to interrupt because there's one guy 
You don't name him. I don't name him. Okay. And I, and I won't. What a, but what a great story. There's a guy who's about to get jammed up, and you speculate in the book that he deliberately doesn't hire you so as to do you solid. Yeah, he was mobbed up. Not jammed up. He was mobbed up. And uh, he, had a, he was connected, and he was an Irish guy. And he had a real bad problem, which I allude to in the book, or I define the book. I figure he, since he's still around, I don't want to hurt him anymore. But there had been a story in Time magazine, or rather two years before in, news, in uh, Life, when Life was in its big day, of how he had uh, gotten a body taken out of his house by, by a guy. And he was really in deep. And uh, I really liked him. He was a really sort of a nice guy, very well turned out. I should have known he had, well, anyway, he was really a happy, good guy. I really liked him. And I uh, clicked with him. He had helped get the Peace Corps bill through with Johnson. He was a big-time Democrat. And, uh, you know, Jersey. Ha! <laughs> Northern Jersey. I mean, I mean I, the guy had a problem with the machine back there, and it was just the wrong guys. You're, you're writing Senate speeches and carrying a, a, a gun as a 38, yeah. I guarded the Pentagon Papers one night. And Bobby Bird, who's still there, the guy will never quit from West Virginia, he came by to make sure I was doing my job. And I'm sitting there with my Marty Milner costume on, uh, watching these papers. And they said, don't let anybody in this room. Now, I got my gun, guarding it with my gun in my life. It turns out they'd already been published in the New York Times, you know, <laughs> the Pentagon Papers. It wasn't that important, but uh, I didn't even know what they were. We didn't know they were the Pentagon Papers till afterwards. The whole trick of life, therefore, is A, find people who you like on your first meeting, B, put effort into winning over those people that you can, C, recognize those whom, to use Donald Trump's phrase, you need to work around. Again, this is what politicians call campaigning. Right, it is. It's life. You click with who you click with. You try to make friends with people if you can, but recognize there's some people there'll always be a chemistry problem with. There just will be, you know. And uh, work around them. And they may have an opposite. They may be your natural opponents. They may be competing for the same job or the same girl or the same guy. There's a lot of opposition in life that just comes with normal life. It's not bad, but if you, unless you make it personal, and you have to understand that uh, some people just have other reasons to look at things than your reasons. And uh, I have to do that. I argue with people every night, you know. And but the great thing about politics is it teaches you that half the people probably won't like you. When I worked for Tip O'Neill, who was a great guy in many ways, when he got on an airplane, especially up in first class, he knew everybody didn't like him. They're all Republicans. He knew that. And they didn't like him. They would like the plane to crash if they weren't on it. <laughs> and uh, he just had to live with that. Bill Clinton, when he was in the worst period of his life, and I think he earned it to a large extent in 98, Bill Clinton had to walk around knowing that most people saw his problem. They knew his problem. He was like a human arcade. They knew everything about him. And he had to walk around and live with that. And I think it's a great example of uh, what you have to do in life. You have to stand up against criticism. You just have to. You, you make an analogy in the book between those uh, on D-Day using crickets. Yeah. And the pleasure that you derive. I have this similar feeling, so I, I love this aspect of the book. The cricket. S speak now, to this. You know what the cricket is? The thing we used to have at Thanksgiving growing up, that little click-click thing, the metal thing. And it's what the Allied uh, paratroopers used when they landed on D-Day minus one. They would land in the, in the dark, they'd, they'd connect with each other in the dark behind Nazi lines, clicking these things so everybody knew who they were. The Nazis didn't have these clickers, obviously. But I sort of do it in my head whenever I hear somebody gets a job in Washington or gets some big appointment or gets some break. I always go, now what was that? And I'll go read in the paper and I'll try to, oh yeah, his wife went to school with this guy's wife or they were in some war together, or they did something together, and you can usually figure it out. And it's kind of, it makes me happy when I figure that out, because then I know how it works again. 
One more time. In, in the, uh, the portion of the book, uh, the section of the book, Friendship. By the way, s slide over toward me a little bit. I'm, I'm still feeling guilty about some of these people up here. And I'm going to help you. Do you want to keep moving around in a circle there? Yeah. This is great. Hey, I once saw Yes do this in 1977 at the Spectrum, and it was very effective, so just work with me here. <laughs> okay. okay. I love the story in the book about Bush 41. Yeah. You're extended an invitation to the White House. You bring your folks. You walk in. There's a scene. There's Bush 41. Is to yeah. Tell that. Come on. Well, as everybody knows, the Bush senior family are old money. They're the old Yankees. They're really good at the social thing. They know how to behave. Uh, they were born to a place like the White House, and they lived there very naturally. So one night when he was elected president, about a month or two in, he decided to start having people to the movies, to sort of have social off-the-record evenings. So my mom and dad were coming to Washington that weekend, and I wasn't going to ditch them. So I called up and I said to a friend of ours, Lois Romano, who had some connections at the White House, can you get my mom and dad invited? Because I'm not going without them. I'm not leaving them back at my, my house, and Kathy and I aren't going to do that anyway. So she let her, she got my mom. My mom was in an early stages of Alzheimer's then. I think that probably helped them give us a little break. I've never been sure about how that connected up with this thing, so I didn't put it in the book, but it may have had something to do with it. So uh, we all get invited to the White House, and we go up the stairs to the third floor. And there is Bush, and he had obviously changed like you did from work. He had the blazer on, a real clubman, you know. He had the blazer on, and he was all differently dressed and for work, you know. He was ready to be social. And... Uh, you're very well turned out, by the way. And, uh, and, it's uh, not 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so uh, he, uh, he took uh, my mom and dad, and they whisked them away. And we were shown around by Barbara Bush, who's very you know, tough cookie, all business. She shows us around everything. So finally we get out on the Truman balcony, and we're lo I'm looking in the door or through the window, and I, and I see three people chatting away like old buddies. It's my parents and Bush. So I go up to Dad and I said, what was that all about? He said, the guy's unbelievable. He took us into his bedroom. He showed us where the bathroom was. He showed us the bathroom, showed us his, his closets, what was in his closets. He was like letting us know what it's like to be president. And I thought, that is so great. So later on that night, it was like people there were like John Tower, the late John Tower. Bill White from the American Baseball League was there, the commissioner. Sort of a mixture of Marty Russo from Illinois, the congressman. It was sort of Tom Foley, the Speaker of the House. It was kind of a mix of pals and celebrity buddies of Bushes, I guess. And he looks across and he says something to my, my dad about my dad being a Democrat. And I said, actually, Mr. President, the whole family's Republican. And he goes, what happened to you? And I go, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he, uh, so about three months later, we're having a meeting in the, uh, with the, I was writing for, the, writing for the San Francisco Examiner, and the Hearst Bureau was meeting in that wonderful room in the West Wing, which is all the Roosevelt stuff, uh, the Roosevelt room, all these Remingtons, these bronzes, the cowboy stuff, and Teddy and Franklin on the wall. And, and the president, I thought, had completely forgotten our meeting. And after it's over, this press interview, he goes all the way down to the table, all the way over to me, and looks me in the eye and says, so has, your, has your dad changed your mind about things yet? <laughs> he is old school. They remember your name. They remember things about you. They're great. I remember when my Aunt Eleanor came to see uh, the, um, the speaker back about 15 years ago. God, it must have been out 15, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. And I remember, I'm pretty sure of this, the first thing he did when he came in the room was, so how, hi, dear, how long have you been out of the habit? 
which is what you say to a nun today. You know, how many years have you gone from the old, uh, the old uh, habit? And he immediately connects. He, he, they have that ability, the old school guys, to connect with you as a person and before any of the politics gets in the way. And remembering things about you. They remember your health. They remember who, who the kids are. They remember... These are the great things about the best politicians. They are really listeners. They really pay attention. Now, today, television has ruined some of that. They're just... Some of them are pretty thin, but I like that part of them. I What's, think if you do that in life, people really like you more. It's one rule, I think. If you pay attention to other people... I'm not saying this is a Christian or a Judaic value. I'm just saying... If you pay attention to the other person, you're going to be a lot better at dealing with people. They're going to like you more, and they're going to realize that you really care about them. If you just come up to people and forget their names. I mean, one thing about a politician, you can forget the name of a person who helped you maybe once. The second time you forget the name, it bugs the person. And they'll say, I brought in a division for you. I brought in a county for you. And you don't remember my name. And the third time, you were in big trouble with that guy. So one thing politicians who are any good have to do is learn to listen and pay attention, which I think is a healthy thing. Given that uh, Jim is a Montgomery County commissioner, and, and we all, of course, know what you do for a living, I can only imagine that it was a, a house growing up where politics was discussed at the dinner table. What, what was it like at the Matthews dinner table? Well, it was tough. I mean, uh, as my older brother Herb would say, the big treat in, in our family was to get to stick around for the second cup of coffee after supper because my parents I don't know how they got to bed at night they would have two black cups of coffee after supper every night and of course we ate at like four in the afternoon <laughs> no we ate pretty early but about six on the dot but uh, it was always a serious conversation about something it was never frivolous it was usually talking about something that's going on in the world and my dad was always tough about it he would always say where'd you hear that who told you that you know some left-wing teacher you know where'd you get that from you know, there was always that investigative kind of aspect to it. But if you said something, you had, to, you had to defend it. Our family was tough. The brothers would, all my brothers, if you said something that was old news, good luck. Because the answer would be hot flash. You know, it better be new and it better be interesting and you better be able to defend it. So that was my hardball growing up experience, I think. And my brothers will attest to this. Did, did you play hardball at the dinner table? Not me. But everybody sort of was on their guard, yeah. It was a serious place to grow up, I think. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? 
Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. Before I leave the, the subject of Bush 41, uh, he comes uh, up a couple of times. And, and one story I love because I think it says a lot. Having coffee with the vice president of Egypt. Yeah. T- tell, tell that. In- well, when I did that debate the other night with the Republicans, I asked uh, Fred Thompson... And I was 20 minutes from the Canadian border up in Dearborn, Michigan. And I were right next to the Canadian border, which is our longest border. It's kind of 3,000 miles long. We have, it's our largest trading partner. But nobody pays attention to Canada unless they got a prime minister who dumps on us all the time, like Trudeau. So I said to them, who's the prime minister of Canada? That's considered a trick question in America. Who's the head of the country right next to you? Asking the question of somebody running for president. This is a weird country. We are so arrogant, we don't think we have to even know the country head next to us. Just next to us. Why should we know their name, guys, head of their country? I was waiting. If, what you, if you get a call after you're elected from somebody named Steve Harper, he says, hi, it's Steve Harper. The, the president would say, so who are you? Well, I'm the prime minister of the country next to you. Oh, oh nice to meet you. Uh, so I thought it was a good question, but... Uh, what Bush Sr. did was pay attention to friends. He, uh, when Mubarak was number two in Egypt and the great Anwar Sadat was still alive, he took him to lunch. He took him, when he, took him to baseball games in Baltimore. And when the, prime, when the, can, uh, the uh, emperor, emperor of Japan, the guy who fought us in World War II, died, Bush went to the funeral and he hung out with the, the prime minister, uh, became friends with him. Building relationship with Helmut Kohl, with... Uh, 
Mitterrand, they go for, since Mitterrand, the French president, was a socialist, didn't play sports, they go for long walks in the woods together because that's what he wanted to do. He's a very profound, serious guy. All these times building up personal relationships with people so that when he got into the war situation in uh, 91, he simply made the phone calls and called in all that help. It's a great example of life. Don't ask for help the first call. Build those relationships. And I think Bush Sr. was great at it. I don't think his son is as good at it. As, uh, at building relationships. I think we went in that war alone. And uh, it's sad. Some people surprised to hear you say that. No, <laughs> no the, the coalition of the willing was not a big coalition. Uh, but I think the old man was very good at keeping in touch with people, and I think it's a great rule of life, which is uh, don't ask for a favor the first call. Just before the debate that you last moderated, there was a bit of a controversy because you had a 10-year hardball celebration. Right. You said some things. No, I'll say it again. They get caught up in their criminality, yeah, with the whole Scooter Libby case. The number one reason a lot of Americans support the war with Iraq was not this theory of neoconservative rebuilding the Middle East or spreading democracy by force or any of that. It was fear that they might drop a, a, a nuclear weapon on us, and the argument was used at the end that they could deliver. They had this vehicle to deliver it. And that, that sold. That sold to a lot of middle-of-the-road people to go into that war. turns out that they couldn't defend the case, and when it was challenged by the Wilsons, and there was a case made that that whole Italian letter was bogus and, they could, and the vice president should have known it and didn't act on the intelligence he got and helped the president build the case that there was a nuclear threat with the aluminum tubes and the, and the yellow cake from Niger and all that stuff. And then Scooter Libby got convicted of obstructing that investigation. And then the president commuted him. And we're supposed to walk past that and say, well, that's over with. We can't talk about it anymore. Well, no. If Scooter Libby were in federal prison right now, the criminality would be manifest. Because he was commuted, we're supposed to pretend the crime didn't occur. He wasn't in trouble for robbing gas stations. He was in trouble for doing stuff at work as chief of staff to the vice president. And the prosecutor in that case, Fitzgerald said, Fitzpatrick, Fitzgerald said, there's a cloud over the vice president here. So I was saying the truth. The truth hurts. You, uh, you were upset with me on your program when I told you that I didn't think that story played outside the Beltway because it was just too complicated. You seemed, you seemed to me, as the guy on the receiving end of one of those video feeds, as, as born of frustration over the fact that it wasn't, as the president would say, resignating in the heartland. Yeah, that's true. It is frustrating that, that a, uh, a commuting of a sentence can be in a, a political exoneration. Yeah, I think it's frustrating. I want to know, wouldn't I like, you know I'd like to know? I don't know the answer to this, but remember the Pentagon Papers in 1967 that Robert McNamara commissioned uh, with the Rand Corporation, a totally non-political organization. He said, give me a record on how we became politically and militarily involved in, our, in uh, Vietnam. I want that Pentagon Papers done, which I guarded once. I want Pentagon Papers done on this war in Iraq. I want to know exactly who talked to the president. I want to know exactly who built the case that we had a nuclear threat facing us, the whole shebang. I'd like that record. And I don't think we're going to get it from the Congress or the press. You, you know that uh, I'm recording tonight for use tomorrow on my program, yeah. and I and, uh, appreciate your, your willingness to allow me to do that. Let me just stay with this subject. Is that a warning? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm for a Pentagon Papers. That's right. Yeah. Uh, here's how I look back at the whole uh, Iraq situation. I didn't buy into it until Colin Powell's presentation to the UN Security no. Council. I know where I was when he made that speech as I was watching TV, and I believe Colin Powell to be a man of integrity. I, a man of integrity. I still do. Uh, if he said it, I think he believed it at the time. 
and, and what frustrates me are the people who call my program or they send me emails and they say, Bush lied. To this day, I don't believe the president lied. Do I think they massaged some of the data because he had it in for Saddam Hussein? I do, but I want to know if you think that, that the administration look, uh, was lying relative look, to the look, All you can go by is behavior and uh, motive is the older I get, the more I realize you can't get into motive because you can't figure out your own motives. You can have three reasons for doing something and you won't admit the reason you really did it. And uh, I think there's a complex degree of motives here in all cases. I don't think the president would fail a lie detector test when he was saying what he said. I don't think Colin Powell would flunk a lie detector test. But, you know, when you get into a political situation, you try to find the truth that's useful, and you try to avoid the truth that's not. We know how it's, it's called cognitive dissonance, where you don't see what you do see. I mean, Ronald Reagan once said when he was talking about a health exam, he had just taken a health exam and discovered polyps or something, and he had had a quick... Uh, operation which saved him, and he said, don't be afraid to see what you see. Well, most people are afraid to see what they see. And I'm sure, well, I don't know, but he may have seen a complexity in the case he was making. Colin Powell may have seen a weakness in the case he was making, but he went ahead as a good soldier. My problem with Colin Powell is, and I like him too, and I know him a little bit, is he wasn't a soldier. He was a minister of the government, he was secretary of state. It was his job to resign if he didn't believe in the war. His job was not to salute. That's what soldiers have to do. And I even think the generals with field rank, there's a big debate now in Leavenworth a week or two ago, as you know, about what is the responsibility of a senior officer. Is it to say, yes, sir, or is it to say, Mr. President, that won't work. You don't have enough troops to win that war. It will, you cannot occupy Iraq with what you put in there. And none of them did do that, and except for the ones that got sacked. You, know. you mentioned Ronald Reagan. I love the Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan vignettes that are in the book. 1982... You're working for Speaker O'Neill. Ronald Reagan comes to Capitol Hill to, to deliver a State of the Union. You're in the cloakroom, is it? Paint the picture. Well, the president gives the State of the Union in the House of Representatives in the chamber of the House. And um, I had this great office right across the hall from the chamber. Uh, I had like a big desk, like a Mandarin in China. I had this gigantic desk. And in through the door to my left was the ceremonial office where the speaker held his press conferences where he met with dignitaries and foreign leaders and that was also the room where the president stayed when he was getting ready to give a state of the union for about an hour he would go in there and drink his uh, I think it was hot tea it was, Reagan had different things sometimes it would be Perrier he was experimenting with what would help him with his great voice you know and uh, so I go in that room in 82 the first time I was chief AA to the speaker and I walked in there and I said, well, Mr. President, welcome to the room where we plot against you. And he said, oh, no, not after six. We're all friends after six. And uh, the speaker says we're all friends after six. And then I found out that delightful story about what happened with, uh, do you want to hear that one? Yeah. About what happened? Well, Ronald Absolutely. Reagan was shot. Obviously, we all know that. And we, what we didn't know was how close it was to killing him. That even though his adrenaline allowed him to go into George Washington Hospital and say, Nancy, I, Mom, Mommy, I forgot to, to duck. And I said to the surgeons, Are you, uh, I hope you're all Republicans. And all, you know, all this Elan, you know, going for him. But it turned out that he had lost half his blood supply. And if he hadn't gotten there in 11 minutes, thanks to Jerry Parr, this fabulous Secret Service agent who, who threw him in the car and jumped on top of him and would have taken a bullet for him, like three guys did take bullets for him, which is a great American story right there. Uh, he uh, got into the hospital and uh, Jim Baker was uh, a great chief of staff. He's one of the heroes of my book. And Jim Baker was concerned that nobody got in to see Reagan too soon. In fact, Bobby Byrd had snuck in to see him one time when he was just 
barely out of the operating room and really disturbed him. So he said, nobody gets in to see him until I say so. No big shots. And so he put Max Friedersdorf in charge of watching him. And Friedersdorf was the chief lobbyist. He knew all the people on Capitol Hill. And then after a couple of weeks, he said, well, why don't we let the speaker in? Because he's the leader of the opposition. It would be a good ritual. And he's also in line to be president, of course. He's right after the vice president. So uh, they let Tip in. And Friedersdorf's the only guy in the room. And I guess Tip was unaware of him even being there because he's across the room. And he records this in the University of Virginia um, oral history. The Tip is on his knees next to Reagan's bed. There, he has kissed him. And they're holding hands, and they're reciting the 23rd Psalm together. So, something else. Because I think in politics, the one thing I've learned is the wonder of the levels on which these guys can operate. The ability to fight it out, and to have this human connection. And I always try to say to myself, no matter how much I disagree with somebody about the war even... If the guy was in trouble and he was in the streets and he had a heart attack or he just got hit by something, I'd be racing over trying to help him. So I've got to keep reminding myself, we're, the, we're in this together. It isn't, you know, it isn't, we're, we're together here. And, and I think when I read that story, I said, well, that explains something of this strange relationship between Reagan and Tip. But the best thing it says about them is they're both good people. When I read that in the book, I said to myself, that's what's lacking today. And yeah. if you agree that's what's lacking today, what, it, what attributes to the decline? What what caused this? Well, I think you should have really good debates about this war. In fact, one of my arguments, maybe with you or anybody else, not so much lately, but in the past, would be we didn't have enough debate before we went in. We have the debate now, like four years too late. Uh, that uh, debate is great. It should be red-faced. It should be serious. But it shouldn't be personal if you can avoid it. I, I tell this story in the book about the Republican congressman who's fighting with the Democratic congressman on the floor of the House late Thursday night. And we always had our big votes on Thursday night so the guys could go home to their, across the country. And there's always a great... Sometimes the guys drank at dinner, too. That's always interesting, too. When they have white wine at dinner, it adds to the debate quality. Uh, so at one point, this guy's all red-faced. The other guy's all red-faced. And I'm standing there at Thursday night because I was a staffer, and I could walk around the floor. and had this joy of being able to... Because I was Tip's guy. I could walk anywhere. And I'm standing there, and this guy comes across the floor... And he sees the guy he'd been yelling back and forth with. And he said, what are you doing this weekend? And the guy mumbled something to him. He says, well, say hello to your wife for me and walked out the door. I loved it. Because that is what it's about, isn't it? It's about being able to debate in a democratic civil society and uh, knowing that the important thing is, as my former chief counsel, the speaker, Kirk O'Donnell, who died a couple years ago, said, you have to be able to talk. You have to be able to argue, but you must be able to continue to be able to talk. You can't say, like in high school, I'm not talking to her, I'm not talking to him. You can't get at that level. You have to keep at the level that you can always talk. And I think what that guy was doing was saying, the next time I see you, what you'll remember is I talked to you on the way out of the room. You won't remember the fight we have. You'll remember we chatted on the way out of the room. He understood the importance of reopening the relationship after the argument. And I think that, do you know what's missing today? It's all personal. It's not big picture. They don't have the philosophical debates. They have these sort of petty things, you know, and I think that they've gotten the worst of the worst but and not the best of the best. From my perspective, what's frustrating is that it appears to work. You look at the, uh, the, the, the Petraeus ad, which was outrageous, but the debate over that ad became more significant than the debate of what Petraeus and Crocker had actually testified to. Yeah. Uh, Stark just made that outrageous statement on the floor of the House last week, and consequently, we all get off on these tangents about what he's 
You know what I mean? It's just he did apologize today. But Chris, he did. He completely laid down I know, and apologized but, this afternoon, which I think was a good thing. Okay, but the point is that the people, and I think this is this is more in the realm of people who do what I do for a living, meaning radio, than the big shots on TV. They seem to get rewarded for this. Well, yeah, it's by some people, yeah. You and Coulter is incredibly successful as an author. But I blame Donnie Deutsch for that. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I know I don't you did. I saw Coulter. your piece on the paper, Sonny. I, I know that I'm not sh- I don't think I do. I think she knew that she was an agent provocateur. She knew what she was doing. Donnie's a pretty reasonable guy. Now, all you can say is he shouldn't have had her on, but, but he, he didn't know what he was, was going to say. He knew what he, he was didn't know she he was going to He brought her on for the skirt, the blonde hair, oh. and the outrageous statements. He got exactly what he wanted. Well, I did that. I've got to admit that. I've had her on. <laughs> I have to tell you, that last comment, she keeps doing it. She calls the, uh, the, the wives of the guys killed at 9-11, what she said about them. and I mean, she just keeps crossing Horrible. the line. But Harpies, the, but she keeps crossing the line, you know. Uh, you referenced... Uh, a Secret Service agent whose last name is Oh, Parr. what a great guy. Okay, but you tell an unbelievable story. I know, at isn't the it tip. great? I never heard my it before. My favorite story. Okay, you have to tell that. Well, when I was growing up, my brothers know this, my dad would always take us to the drive in because he liked to go to the movies more than mom, I think. And so we'd always take us to the drive in. It was a dollar, the Lincoln drive in. And then some nights you'd have two hours of cartoons, two movies, and a spook show at midnight. And you'd get out of there. We were always asleep. My brother, Herb, we were always asleep coming home. But my dad would stay till two in the morning, and even I had to go to work the next day. And and he always hide the Pepsis in the back seat because he always, we always thought that catch us bringing sodas in because we couldn't, didn't have the money to go buy Cokes for everybody. So we'd bring them in the back seat, a six-pack of Pepsi, right? You remember 12-ounce? Better than Coke? Anyway, <laughs> uh, so we bring that in. So uh, Jerry Parr's father was like that. He'd take him to the movies a lot when he's growing up. So Jerry Parr's uh, father um, took him to see some sort of B-movies like we used to go to over at the Mervin and the Mayfair, these B-movies in, in Northeast Philly. And... Uh, and they were uh, something called the, uh, the Code of the Secret Service. It was like a Mad Helm. It's a cheap version of, of uh, James Bond, Mad Helm. And so he saw this movie. He said, I want to be a Secret Service agent. So he gets, he, in life is not really working out for him. In his 30s, he becomes a Secret Service agent. He works his way up to head of the Secret Service, White House Presidential Protection Division. He's the chief guy watching the president. In fact, I remember him because... When I was working for President Carter and we were losing the election, we were flying in Marine One down to Florida for Carter to vote and basically accept defeat. Jerry Parr was on the plane with us on Marine One. In fact, I'll never forget him saying, talking into the, or listening, we were listening into his big old walkie-talkie in those days, dancers on the ground, and kind of a crackle sound, dancers on the ground, which meant Mrs. Carter was there and her husband had to go tell her he had just lost by 10 points, which I lived through that. And... Uh, so Jerry Parr later becomes head of Secret Service, and he's the guy who, when John Hinckley starts shooting out in front of the Washington Hilton and shoots the three guys, McCarty and the other guys, um, and, pre- and Jim, uh, Baker, uh, Jim uh, Brady, the president's press secretary, all these crazy bullets, he's the guy that gets between Reagan and the shooter and then gets him in the car, shoves him in and jumps on top and gets them there in 11 minutes. Well, the great part of the story, which brings the chill to me even now, is... The guy who played the hero of um, Code of the Secret Service, the guy who inspired him to save the life of Ronald Reagan, was Ronald Reagan. That is a story. It's a great story. So it has the advantage of being true. (laughs) It really happened. It's It's a godly story. It's a great one. Somewhere in the room is uh, uh, Congressman Mike Fitzpatrick. Uh, Thank you, Congressman, for being here. 
and I saw him walk in and I was thinking about my background in Bucks County. I ran for the state house in 1986 while I was in law school uh, and I lost by 419 votes. I've wow. since located 236 of those people. <laughs> but I was... Everybody says they voted for you, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I... Uh, so I was, I was particularly interested in your discussion of your campaign. Now, let me understand this. You didn't accept any outside money? Well, nobody offered it either. <laughs> I didn't know anybody with any money. I didn't know anybody. My brother Jim was the guy that delivered the 35th ward for me. He was a good Democrat back then. And he got me the 35th. He got me my best numbers. I went around the 66. I could have spent the whole time in the Irish wards and I could have built up my numbers. I was crazy enough to get out of the Jewish wards and try to fight it out with Josh. Josh <laughs> Lyleberg. the incumbent. I had a great time. We had 400 high school kids. And we were going around doing honk and wave on the boulevard. And we had some, if there's any kids here, I just uh, thank you. I but but see, what, what, that's one. And there's of the, one. There's my my cousin Kathy. One of the and her mom was out there every day on the board on the boardwalk. I mean, in Anne Marie, she was out on the Roosevelt Boulevard. My aunt Catherine waving the big sign, honk and wave, until Josh was able to work through the state police and the party and get us off the street. But that's yeah, I was. We learned how it worked. You know, a little power. It but was I, fun. I think this sort of brings the discussion about the book full circle because if I had it to do over again, knowing in advance that I would lose. I'd do it tomorrow. If you yeah. told me that I could be Frank Rizzo's political director like I was in 1987 and that we'd lose to Wilson Good and I could start tomorrow, I'd still do it yeah. because the lessons, the friendships. What was his percentage that time? What did he get? Two uh, percent. And it was 10. one of those races where the, 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 the Teichner at Channel 10 said it was going to be another double-digit race. What's this, 83, 87? 87 was yeah, my year. Yeah, I remember that. You know, I remember how that worked out. When I saw Rizzo signs on really rich people's houses, I thought, this is changing. I never saw so many Rizzo signs that election. You guys were close. Uh, I mean, that was, after, that was after Pouton Village, right? Right. You had a certain advantage there. Yeah, but it still didn't <laughs> you matter. You tried to burn down the city. You know? still didn't matter. Yeah, that, it was, that's sort it was of a after, good campaign issue. It was. It was the after. other guy's an arsonist, and <laughs> we just want to save enough. you from him. I mean, I think you should, you should have won that baby, maybe. <laughs> I have, a, I have a, a, one, one final question. Oh, well, I always thought it was an Irish cop that told him to do it. Just guessing. You know, I said, <laughs> I said yeah, give him that fireball. It's only smoke. It won't hurt anybody, you know. <laughs> just drop it through the roof. Go ahead, Mayor. You're my guy. I, I want to make sure that I, A, thank the National Constitution Center. These are good folks with a wonderful facility, and I always love being here, so I'm, I'm very grateful to everybody from the NCC for allowing us to be here tonight. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.